Black excellence is generational wealth. Welcome to the Dripping in Black podcast, where we celebrate Black excellence throughout the Black diaspora. Here's your host, David V. Lewis. What's up, good people all across the world? This is the Dripping in Black podcast. I am your host, David V. Lewis. And per usual, we have another fantastic guest. Today's guest is Sean Stafford. Sean, say hello to the world. What's up, y'all? How you doing? (laughs) All right. Sean is somebody that I've been chasing for the two seasons that we've been doing the podcast. This is our third season. He is family. He is married to my cousin, Kimberly Stafford. They are a dynamic couple. We had Kimberly on on the uh, first season, and we finally were able to get Sean in. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about, you know, little small things that he does in real estate. Before we get to that, we always start with a very simple but complex question of who are you? So who is Sean Stafford? I'm a very ambitious, driven individual that's became a self-made millionaire through hard work, grit, determination. And now I'm someone that wants to give back and share my story so that everyone can do the same thing I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, in essence why I wanted to get you on. Uh, This is the Dripping in Black podcast and we celebrate Black excellence. And you are somebody who started from uh, a beginning that a lot of us start from, right? And you were able to to catapult into the success that you have accomplished. So let's start off by asking. So we see R-E-S-S-C-O behind you, which stands for Real Estate Service Solutions Company. Let's talk about that. What is RESCO? RESCO is a uh, commercial real estate company. We specialize in multifamily housing, which, you know, everyone knows apartments. So we own apartment buildings. Uh, throughout Michigan and Ohio uh, and Indiana. And, uh, you know, our primary mission is to, uh, you know, uh, locate, acquire uh, large apartment complexes, uh, do some redevelopment to them, and provide quality housing to, uh, you know, the workforce community. And what we define as the workforce community is those individuals making anywhere between uh, 30,000 and 80,000 a year. That's primarily our customers, but, um, we own and manage, you know, upwards of, uh, close to 6,000 units. Mm. Wow. And you are the founder and CEO of Resco. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> started the company in 2003, uh, quit my job before and, uh, started the company, but there was a lot of things that happened before I actually quit my job that I know folks that are in real estate, um, you know, have a lot of questions for me about how I got from where uh, no real estate to 6,000 units. And, um, you know, I'm welcome to share all of that with you guys today. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're going to jump right into, because I was going to make a joke and said you inherited these properties. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not Jewish, man. You can see I'm black. (laughs) Right. So that that was not the case. (laughs) <laughs> so kind of walk kind of walk us through um you know but to your point though I, there is a lot of you know my colleagues 
that are on the level I am or my competitors, if you will, they did inherit it, no question yeah. about it. Or they had a lot of help in terms of access to capital. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it, you know, it's not an easy business to jump into to get on a large scale. You just kind of got to find the right avenues to do it. But yeah, I basically started flipping houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit. Um, you know, I think we, you know, we talked about this offline, but single parent mother. Uh, she was 18 years old when she had me. Uh, we grew up on the west side of Detroit, uh, stayed over uh, off Joy Road, then off Seven Mile, then off Puritan. So, you know, we lived all over. But, um, you know, what I learned from her was a strong work ethic. You know, she didn't go to college or anything like that. You know, I'm the first person to go to college in my family, but mm-hmm. she uh, instilled in me a work ethic. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from her. Um, but, yeah, you know, uh, part of her work ethic helped me get into college. And, um, you know, once I got out of college, I went straight to work for the auto companies. And I thought I was set at that point, which mm-hmm. I was. I mean, I had a great job at Ford. Um, mm-hmm. I worked at Chrysler first, actually, then Ford. But I was in the uh, what you call management rotation program. Um, I, I, I went there right out of college. And what they do is groom you to become an executive at uh, the auto companies. And so, um, you know, my mother was extremely proud because I was the first person to go to college in my family. And she thought, well, you're set now. You're working for Ford and, and Chrysler, you know, what else is there? You know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. you know, at that time, we're talking about what, 1997 or so. And I was making a hundred dollars mm-hmm. a year, which was mm-hmm. good money then and it's good money now. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, and I was traveling the world too. They were paying every for everything. And, you know, I had, you know, kind of the good life, you know, and I was only mm-hmm. my twenties. Mm-hmm. And I, I read a couple of books um, while I was working uh, that kind of changed my life in terms of how I looked at money and wealth. Um, okay. I had a great salary and I had a great income, um, you know, drove nice cars and everything else. But um, two books I read, one was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and the other one was Thinking okay. Grow Rich. Okay. Uh, what they both had me focus in on was my net worth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how it's calculated and, you know, how you grow it. And, you know, most people don't even know the calculation of how to calculate your worth, net worth. If you ask them, like, you know, what is the math calculation? It's so simple, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, most people don't focus on that. Um, mm-hmm. But when I calculated while I was working at Ford, you know, I had basically a negative net worth. And the reason wow. why is because uh, if you know the calculation, it's basically your assets minus your liabilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a ton of liabilities in terms of, you know, mortgage, Mm-hmm. Car cars cars car, mm-hmm. car debt everything else and credit card mm-hmm. debt mm-hmm. but i didn't have a whole lot of assets mm-hmm. so because i had way more liabilities in terms of all the debt i had a negative net worth and wow. so what i set out to do was figure out how i can increase my net worth by buying uh um uh appreciating assets okay. and you know, when I talk to folks, people always ask me, you know, what's an appreciating asset? You know, the simple fact is you know, a car is a depreciating asset. As soon as you take it off the lot, it loses value. Yep. It depreciates yep. value. But real estate, a business, you know, even stocks, they they will go up. Now, some go down, too. 
but you mm-hmm. have a tendency to go up if you buy the right real estate and you know the right business and things like that. And so for me, I decided I wanted to try to find me a business that I can get into that had a low barrier to entry. And that's why I chose real estate. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a great walk through that, through that thinking, man. So at what age were you when you, when you read those two books? I was uh, 27. Yeah. 27. Yeah. 27. So yeah, 20. I graduated from college, man. I was 22. Mm. You know, I'm single. You know, I hadn't met your cousin yet. So yeah, <laughs> good life, man. <laughs> um, you know, I had a good job before, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I was living it up. But, you yeah. know, reading those books changed how I thought about it because growing up, you know, with humble beginnings, you know, growing up poor, you know, yeah. you always wanted to be rich. You know, somebody yeah. I watched on TV all the time was George Jefferson. And I swear to God, I was like, I love his character because mm-hmm. he was a black man and didn't take no shit from nobody. And he had yep. his own money. And I was yep. like, you know, that's a man that made his money and it didn't come from athletics. It didn't come from yeah. you know, entertainment and, it, and, you know, and it didn't come from the streets. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, you know, that was something I looked at and I was like, wow, you know, at some point I'd like to be wealthy and rich. And I thought working for someone else would make me wealthy and rich. And if you mm. get at the highest levels of Ford and everything else, you can be. Mm. But mm. that's not always offered to us. And it's dependent on yeah. somebody else and not yeah. yourself. Yeah. And so, um, you know, growing up, you know, you saw a lot of guys in the street making money and they was making big money, but it never lasted. And so, yeah. you know, I, you know, I dabbled in little stuff, very petty stuff. And but I saw like my cousins and friends, you know, either get killed or go to jail. I was like, it's got to be another way to do this. It has to be. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? It just it's too many people out here making money. And, you know, they, they ain't got to look over their shoulder with somebody trying to kill them or, you know, with the police about to lock them up. And yeah. so for me, I didn't really figure it out when I was in high school and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. a teacher in high school, you know, put a bug in my ear to go to college. And she really helped me um, get in there. And I didn't even think about college, but she really like kind of took me under her wing and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, made me believe that I could go to college. And then once I did go to college, that kind of changed my life as well. And there was all these moments in my life where it changed. Yeah. I want to park there for a minute. So you, what what, what, uh, high school did you attend? Went to Cooley High. Cooley High in Detroit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cooley High. So this you know, you can't ask for a better name or <laughs> <laughs> biography, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you attend Cooley High. Uh, would you say you were an academic scholar at Cooley High? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I was on the basketball team there, but I wasn't like, mm-hmm. we had a good team back then. That was back in the late 80s. And um, that's when we had won three championships, but I was on the bench, man. Uh, I wasn't a you know, star athlete, nothing, but I was still geeked to even be on the team. But mm-hmm. I, I would say uh, academics kind of came easy for me, if you will. I mean, I didn't really mm-hmm. try hard. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the teacher that was in my ear, you know, I think she saw a couple of my papers and stuff like that. And then she asked me one day, you know, what are you going to do after high school? And I just said, oh, no, I'll probably go work in a factory or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was like, you ever thought about going to college? And I was like, no, nah, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't afford it or whatever. And so mm-hmm. 
know, what she put me up on is, you know, there's all kinds of scholarships out there. You can get loans. And, um, you know, I took the ACT and I got a 14, which is a terrible score on the ACT. <laughs> and so, um, but uh, she worked with me, though, and she said, look, you know, I'm going to work with you, try to help you out, because um, I think you can definitely get into Michigan, Michigan State. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, because she took an interest in me, you know, I just felt something from that. And I felt an obligation to at least try. And mm-hmm. so by taking her tutelage, you know, I was able to get a much better score. I got like a 21, 22 or something like that. And I was able to get mm-hmm. into Michigan State. And mm-hmm. Bill Cooley High, it's all black. I mean, like we had maybe one white guy that went to the school and it was 3,000. Yeah. Um, but then going to Michigan State, it was the complete opposite. Yeah. Uh, you know, 40,000, it was only 5% black, but uh, so yeah. it, was, it was a change in my life, but a welcome change because I think what a lot of us get caught up in is our environment and yeah. that's all, no doubt. all you see and you think that's all there is. Yeah, Once you no doubt. Your environment and you see all of these other avenues, the world opens up to you. Yeah, man. Uh, teacher taking an interest in you and then getting exposure to a world outside of one of your own uh, are great lessons. Do you get to be a uh, founder and CEO of Resco without your journey through college? Oh, no question. I can still do without college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, college, you know, I advocate college, but I don't say it's a requirement, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what I tell folks is that, you know, college you know, you learn skills there. And, and, you know, when I, you know, I speak in high schools and stuff like that. What I, you know, tell folks is you have to acquire skill sets, whatever that might be, because that's how you make money is through your skill set. Okay. Mm-hmm. So no different than an athlete acquires a skill set, becoming a great basketball player, football. He has a skill that very few people can do. Okay. Um, you know, a musician has a skill that very few people can do, and that's why they get paid a lot of money for it. So college allows you to go and acquire skills if you don't necessarily have those other unique skills. Now, you can learn those skills somewhere else, but it's a good avenue to go learn critical thinking, problem solving, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying, uh, high, you know, high-level writing, uh, mm-hmm. decoding complex math problems. So those are things that you learn because you will use that in whatever profession you know, if you own a business, there's tons of problems that come at you all the time. And you got to yeah. be able to, you know, figure out and decode that problem. You know what I'm saying? Critical thinking is being able to analyze a situation and come up with the right idea to overcome whatever that situation might be. And so that yeah. those are things you learn in college. They give you like different scenarios and things like that that you'll learn in like, uh, you know, and breakout sessions and things like that. So that's why I do advocate it because it allows you to elevate your brain um, so that you can tackle whatever you want, but you don't necessarily have to do that. You can yeah. learn on your own. Um, it may be take a little longer or whatever, or you might zero in on what your you know passion is and learn it quickly. But yeah. the key thing is developing skills. You yeah. know, that, that yeah. is you, you got to develop a skill, you know, develop a skill set. Yeah. Yeah. I want to jump in because I think, you know what you said is uh is 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 so priceless man the the critical thinking i always say our our kids and i'm a teacher oh, yeah. um by yeah. trade and, and our kids are critical thinkers they they think critically about things they want to think about but 
they may not realize that they're using that skill. So it's kind of like somebody who's dribbling a basketball but doesn't don't know the, the uh, fundamentals of what they're doing, but yeah. they they can dribble. Yeah. And so really, it's about our kids understanding the value of learning and the value of critical thinking, yeah. right? Oh, no if college does that probably better than any other school system that our kids experience, right? K through 12 doesn't quite nail that. But if you get to the college level, then you're able to acquire those skills a little bit better. Yeah. But, Which, you know, but yeah. And so, I mean, there's other things that you learn is it's information gathering as well. Cause if you don't have access, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm going to give an example, you know, there's, most people don't know what a private placement memorandum is. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a document that is used uh, by um, someone that's in my business to raise money from investors. Um, and, you know, we call it a PPM in my business or if you're raising money for your business. Now, if you go to college and take a business course or get an MBA, you get taught that and it's in the book and you can learn that. But okay. <laughs> you don't go to college. But you have an uncle that has a business that's successful. He's going to teach you that and you just learn it. But it's, you got to learn it somewhere. College gives you ability to gather information that's not really available to you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's let's kind of get let's kind of uh, do a timeline. Right. And again, we talked offline. Uh, excited about getting you on because I knew your story kind of. Mm-hmm. But to get it chronicled and use it as a source of inspiration, because when I look at you, you're somebody who started, you know, you weren't a straight A student. You weren't the all star athlete. But here you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it should be inspirational for other people uh, that can find themselves very similar, not really knowing what they want to do in high school. Right. Somebody yep. kind of takes an interest in you and you kind of figure those things out. So give us a kind of a chronology. Let's start at the uh, high school level. Okay. Right? You start high school and you, 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 you make your trek into college. And actually, I want because we, we covered that. I want to I want to talk about when you first got your foray into real estate. Okay. Right. Well, let me let me let me back up. Let me back, I, I want to tell the story okay. of how I got into Ford, too. OK, at that I think it might be helpful for your audience too. You know, when I got to college, I was very underprepared, um, you know, because Cooley just did not prepare me for it. So I, I did well in my first, you know, year and a half or whatever. But I was on a mission when I got there, though, because I was the first person to go to college in my family and I was going to figure mm-hmm. it out. I had a great time in college. I partied my ass off. I got a bunch of friends. <laughs> else. Um, I mean, and I think he was at my 50th and you saw all my buddies and all my homies and all that. So we had a yeah. lot of fun. But I always had this model of work hard, play hard. And so, you know, I, I'm going to get my work done, then I'm going to have some fun after that. But mm-hmm. because of that, when I was underprepared, what I mean by that is, you know, I was not getting internships and things like that while I was in college just because I didn't interview well. Um, I was mm-hmm. essentially getting to an interview, didn't know what to say, didn't know how to sell myself. And so, mm-hmm. You know, I was never getting hired, but I didn't, you know, think much of it. But then when it was time to graduate, you know, it was very hard for me to get, you know, I went there to go get this good job, if you will. And yeah. I was like, man, I just went through four years of college and I don't know, I'm not, not I'm not about to get this good job. Mm-hmm. You know, I got homies at home and my 
you know, uncles and stuff like, oh shit, he went to college and that, you know, ain't even paying off, you know, so they talking shit, yeah. you know, and yeah. so, you know, <laughs> I, I was like really at a desperate point because I'm feeling like I was about, to, it was about a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. And, wow. You know, but what happened was I said to myself, look, you got to make it happen for yourself. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't getting interviews and then Chrysler came up there to Michigan State and they had an interview uh, session. You know, it was only allowed for 10 applicants. Um, I didn't get on the list. And, um, you know, in my mind, I really wanted to work for Chrysler because I knew that it paid well. And so what I did, man, I threw on my suit and I went up there uninvited <laughs> and waited till the interviews was over. A man came out the interview room. I said, I handed my resume. I said, you give me five minutes of your time. I guarantee you'll hire me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all he could say was no. That's all he yeah. could say was no. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to him for five minutes. He took my resume, walked away, didn't say shit. And so <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, you know, whatever. But then okay. a week later, I get a letter in the mail from Chrysler and they like come in for a second interview, come down to headquarters for a second interview. And I was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it was, yeah. if I didn't make that move or try, it would have never happened. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And what I always encourage people is just say, don't be afraid, man. You know, all they can do is tell you no. And where did that, where does that come from? Where does the, 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 the courage do that come from? Well, it wasn't just instilled in me. And that's why I tell people, people think you're born like that. It wasn't, mm. you know what it comes from. And I always recommend this to people that are kind of stage fright or afraid of rejection. Take a commission only sales job. What I did one summer when I couldn't get an internship is I sold mm-hmm. vacuums. Um, you, you don't make money unless you sell one, period. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you don't make a dime unless you sell one. But a commission-only sales job mm. teaches you the art of accepting rejection and knowing it's mm-hmm. part of the process. It's part of the process of success. And so for me, wow. you know, trying to sell those vacuums and going through that, you know, I got a whole ton of rejection. I mean, our, our whole little spiel real quick was to, we give a free carpet clean. We'll clean your carpet because that vacuum, it was a sweet thousand dollar vacuum. A thousand dollar vacuum back in 19, what, 19, <laughs> <laughs> so we had people huge, huge market for that. <laughs> we was happy with finance these vacuums, but it was a good damn vacuum though. <laughs> but, but what I said, I said, okay, we get in there. You got to, you know, have the, they told you, taught you to say, make sure they watch it. And then what you do, most people think they're clean, you know, but there's a lot of shit getting in your carpet. So once you pull that dirt up, put it on this little sheet, and then you put it in their face and you got them sold. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it didn't work all the time, but I was able to overcome my fear of rejection because I started to sell some, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And once you start doing that, then you feel like, okay, I can do this. And so, but it, it mm-hmm. helps you overcome that fear of rejection. Then I started making some money. And so I always tell people, take a commission only sales job. That'll help you overcome that fear of rejection. You know what okay. I'm saying? And, and so that 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 was where that courage started to come from. But you got to be able to understand that everything is not going to go your way. And you cannot, you know, be deflected when you get rejection because it's just a part yeah. of life. And so yeah. you, that's a fear you have to overcome. You got to figure out some kind of way to overcome that. Yeah. So you get the job at Ford and then... Uh... 
eventually you get into real estate. Talk yeah. about yeah, your so jump, your yeah, jump four, into real estate. Yeah. So at four, um, again, great job traveling all over the world. Um, I mean, I, I hadn't gotten on the airplane until I got that job. And so that was my first time at 23. They flew me to Germany and flew me to Japan, Mexico, all of this stuff, man. And it was, you know, I was living a life. I loved it. Um, mm. You know, making 100000 a year. It was great. But, you know, I was in purchasing at Ford. And so I was the guy that negotiated the price for all of the glass in the Ford vehicle. Mm. Guys on the other end was the guys that called on me. And they were the suppliers. These guys were multimillionaires. And I'm looking at them. Yeah, they paying for me to, you know, for lunch and dinner and all that kind of stuff, taking me to ball games mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these guys are rich and I'm not. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out like what's going on here. Like, you know, so I'm thinking, like, how can I beat them? And so mm-hmm. that's when I read the two books I told you about. And once I read them, it changed my whole way of thinking. And so mm-hmm. what I did is after I read it, I looked at, you know, basically if I stayed at Ford in 10 years, where will I be? And I looked at the job that I could get in 10 years, you know, and mm-hmm. it was probably director level or something like that. But I yeah. saw what that, I figured out what that, I looked at what that person made. And I was like, the sky's the limit. There is no ceiling. There is yeah. no, there is no cap. And it's not dependent on someone else. And so then I thought, okay, what business can I get into where I don't need, you know, millions of dollars to start it or thousands of dollars to start it or hundreds of thousands to start it. And so that's when I said, okay, let me try to um, flip houses. And uh, I met a guy, um, this guy named Gilbert Williams, who was a real estate agent. And, um, he said to me one time we were at a barbecue, uh, why don't you become a landlord? And I was like, man, I'm not changing no toilets and doing all that stuff. Man. <laughs> He's like, come on, man, I ain't doing all that. <laughs> he said, you got to own the company and have other people do it. And that's when it was that, I, that light bulb clicked in my head. Like, you can own the company and have other people do it. Mm. And, so, and I did research on, you know, uh, large apartment um, uh, investment companies. Mm. So the Village Greens, the Heyman companies, these are all large companies that have been in business since the 1920s. Yeah. Jewish, my Jewish felt, my Jewish uh, colleague, <laughs> their fathers and their grandfathers started these businesses, yeah. you know, 50, 100 years ago. Something I preach now, generational wealth, they handed it off to my colleagues and they inherited it. But I was like, I could do that. And so I figured out, I've developed a plan to get into the apartment business. And so, yeah. I, but it had to start, the reason why I started with flipping houses is because I needed cash. Yeah. So I, I figured out that, okay, let, I, could, I could buy a house in Detroit for maybe 40000 because I had some savings and I had credit cards, 20000 into it, and then sell it for 100000 And yeah. so that's how I got started, was buying single families, two families, four families, using my own money and um but flipping them now i wasn't yeah. the only one doing it at the time you know i had you know some homeboys that was doing the same thing a couple guys worked at ford too and some mm-hmm. other guys now mm-hmm. the difference between me and them as soon as they made maybe a thirty thousand or forty thousand dollar lick off of selling the house they bought a benz or they bought you know they went out and mm-hmm. uh 
you know, bought a bunch of jewelry and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I stacked. You know, I was just stacking. I put it in the bank and I bought another property. Just kept reinvesting it because mm. my thing was that was that was very short sighted. I wasn't trying to make money that small money. Yeah. I, I had a bigger vision to where I wanted yeah. to be like a Village Green or be like the Heyman Company. Yeah. I wanted to build a bigger business. And yeah. so that little short term game of you know buying the bins or buying a bunch of jewelry, and all that. I said, I'll wait for that. I'll get that eventually. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Let, let me let me reinvest this because for me to get the real money, you know, I got to buy bigger buildings. Yeah. So so the initial start was flipping houses and then stacking that cash. Um, uh, but the biggest start, and this is what I always preach when I go into schools, it's good credit. Good mm. credit got me started. Good credit got me started because I mm-hmm. was able to borrow money from the banks. You know, and I was able to, you know, leverage my good credit and the fact that I had some savings. Um, and so the two things I teach, you know, young kids, because they're just starting out, keep your credit 100 percent clean. Do mm-hmm. not screw it up because it will come back to bite you and then save 30 cents on every dollar. 30 cents on every dollar you make. I don't care how much it is. Save 30 cents on every dollar. Mm-hmm. And put it away and stack it and let it grow and eventually you'll have enough to where you can invest it but save 30 cents on every dollar so adjust your lifestyle to 70 percent of your income so mm-hmm. you know if, if you make a hundred thousand you should be saving thirty thousand a year yeah. uh, and then you you know after a couple of years that thirty thousand is going to turn into 150,000 yeah god that takes discipline that takes real yeah. discipline to live off yeah. 70% of your income. Yeah, man. There's so many questions and stuff that I can actually we'll be here forever. Um, so what, what I want to do want to say is, is uh, so let's go back. You said you had a negative network. <laughs> How old were you then? I was uh, 20, yeah, 27, 28. 27, yeah. 28, and you are 50 now. 50 now, yes. What is your net worth now? In the multi-millions, my brother. The multi-millions. <laughs> but it's been like that yeah. for the last 10 years. All and right. So it's just been growing. Yeah, it's been growing yeah, yeah, ever since then. It was in the multi-millions when I was in my 40s. Yeah. And so the teacher that kind of pushed you towards college, the learning in college, the, the books, Think and Grow Rich and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then putting it into action. Yes. Right. Because, you know, I've, I was having a conversation with a few of my friends and we reflect and we analyze, but then the implementation, we, we tend to go back to reflecting and analyze and we stay in between those two steps. And the, the risk taking is at the implementation stage. At some point, you just got to jump in and do yeah, the it. The risk right? taking is huge. And, and, you know, I'm saying mm-hmm. entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. And I, I, I do always stress that. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Not for everybody because there is sleepless nights because your money isn't guaranteed. You know, mm-hmm. you got a job, your money is guaranteed. You know you're going to get paid every week or every month or whatever. Um, but it's not guaranteed. So it's not for everybody. You got to have a stomach for it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, my thing is, if you are going to go into it, you know, I kind of say a few things you always got to keep in mind. Dream big. You know, you got to kind of figure out, okay, 
What is your pot of gold? What are you dreaming for? What do you want? And then once you know that, and once you have that in your head, because everybody's dream or pot of gold is different. You got to you know, yeah. figure out what is that for you. Yeah. Then you need to put a plan in place. How are you going to get to that dream or that pot of gold? What is the what is the plan of action to get there? You have to like mm-hmm. write that out. That's what people call business plans, things like that. You got to put a plan together to get there. You can't just dream about it, want it, but then don't put no plan in action. Now you may not know how to get there. That's where you take counsel. One of the things I used to do when I was first starting my company, I used to go to this and they probably still offer it now. And I always recommend people do it. I went to get business counseling at the, it was free business counseling by the government. It was called uh, a program called SCORE. Um, Mm. S-C-O-R-E. And it probably still exists today if you Google it, but it was basically people that, are retired business people that give you free counseling. You basically go mm. sit, talk about your plan or whatever, and they can say, "Hey, you're trying to do this, and how are you going to do that with this?" So they'll, you know, they'll help you walk you through it, mm. and just so you can think better about what you're trying to do. Because okay. the plan, the plan is critical. Um, and because once you develop that plan, then you got to put the work in, and that's that yeah. taking that you're talking about you know you got to do the work you got to go and that's where a lot of people kind of stop they start they do the they dream big they know what they want yeah. they put they put a plan together but then <laughs> put in the work part that's yeah. where you know either they're afraid to put the work in or some people i mean i'm gonna be real are lazy like they you know yeah. you got a job that means you got to do that shit after work and yeah. that's what I was doing while I worked at Ford. I, I, I built my business after work. I worked a full-time mm-hmm. job, but then I went home and did all my real estate stuff after work. Mm-hmm. And so that requires that you got to, you know, you can't just have this mindset. I'm going to work from nine to five. You yeah. know, so you got to be ready to work every day. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So, man. Uh, oh, and I'm going to just give you the last little part to it. <laughs> Put the work in, that don't mean it's going to come to fruition. It can totally flop and fail. Mm-hmm. When it does that, the last part is to, you know, basically be determined to start over again and figure out because every failure, there was a flaw in your plan. There was something in your plan that was wrong. You mm-hmm. got to go back. You can't never give up. You got to go back and figure out what the hell was the problem with my plan. I didn't mm-hmm. start flipping houses. I started doing appraisals. I got an appraisal license when I started in real estate. I, my plan okay. was, you know, have this big appraisal company. But mm-hmm. then as I started doing it, I wasn't making the money, I thought, all that kind of stuff. And then what I found is I really didn't do my homework as to, in terms of how much you could really make from appraisals. Mm-hmm. And so I went back, re, retweaked my plan and said, I'm going to go full bar and try to own apartment buildings. But that, that was my flaw in my plan. I didn't give up. And a lot of guys, like I told you, that started with me, they gave up on real estate because maybe they lost a house got in foreclosure, yeah. they didn't realize why that happened. And they just said, man, fuck real estate. I'm not doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Awesome stuff, man. I want to give you a little time because you're also a philanthropist, right? So I want to give you a little bit of time to talk about your organization and your philanthropy. So it's called That Next Level. And uh, you can Google it. It's um, uh, That Next Level or tnlfoundation.org. And um, essentially, our mission is to teach financial literacy and generational wealth to the Black community. And we not only do we have a, 
program that we teach, but we'll donate to any cause that is trying to teach financial literacy or generational wealth. And so I'll start with some of the organizations that we donate to. Uh, there's a, a, a woman out that sponsors a program in Africa called Basics. And she's, you know, her mission is to get as many African kids in Ghana educated so that um, they can become financially independent. And so we donate to her cause. Uh, our church, Plymouth United, has several scholarship programs that are helping to uh, kids build skill development. Because I'm a big thing on skills. I always tell people, they're, uh, they're always like, I want to make a lot of money. I'm like, okay, what do you do? Okay, why should I pay you some money? Why, why should I pay you anything? What the hell can you do? If you tell me I don't have any skills, then that's why you're broke because you don't have skills. You need marketable yeah. skills. Uh, but then our program, we we recruit volunteers to go into high schools. Uh, we partner with General, General, Junior Achievement, and the whole purpose of it is to teach all the financial um, uh, literacy things that I told you about: good credit, budgeting, um, investing. These are you know things that. Um, Junior Achievement already had a ready-made program that we use, and um, uh, my wife heads it up and does a lot uh, does a lot of the legwork. And then at the end of the program, I come and speak to the, all of the students, and we usually have like two hundred students each, each time. And I've walked them through all the lessons they learned and how I applied it to my life, and it got me from where where I, where I was at, where they're at. I mean, we go into Cody yeah. High School, Martin Luther King, and I tell them I yeah. grew up just like you did. Yeah. All these things you just learned. That's what I applied to my life. And that helped me get to where I'm at today. Yeah. All right, cuz I thank you for uh, finally coming on. Like I said, I uh, hope the audience see why I was uh, looking forward to getting you on and we can go on and on and on. <laughs> I think we just kind of really touched the surface on a lot of things, but I really appreciate you. We do have one last question that we ask all of our guests. It's the toughest question, so I'll save it for last. You ready? Go ahead. <laughs> Have you ever been on a magazine cover? Magazine cover? No, I have not. Okay. So from Cooley High to Michigan State, Teresco, oh, don't forget the Ford company, uh, no magazine covers. I've been in magazines, but not on the cover. All right. Well, one of the things that we do for all of our guests here at Dripping in Black is we place them on the Dripping in Black magazine cover as a thank you for coming out. Uh, my uh, producer, <laughs> Sean Smith, is putting your cover up for you. All right. <laughs> right. You if you look over my shoulder, you see quite a few of the guests from season one and season two. There's your lovely wife up there. I see it. Ah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that is a parting gift that we give to all of our guests as a thank you for coming out and uh, sharing their story with us. We will send that to you in the mail at a later date. All right. Sounds great, man. I love it. I love it. I love it, man. No, I appreciate it, man. I, you know, I look forward to this, man. I, like I told you, if I can do it, anybody can do it, man. And that's all I'm preaching, man, is that the more generational wealth we build in our community, man, the more power we have. I mean, the march and all that is cool, but this country is yeah. about bread, man. And that's the only thing that they respect and we got to get more of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again to Sean Stafford. And we uh, asked our audience to check us out 
Don't forget, we have the DIBK Drip Shop. It's open. Go to DIBKDripShop.com to cop your Dripping in Black merch. But thanks again to Sean Stafford. Appreciate it, my brother. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of the Dripping in Black podcast, we have educator Dr. Rima Vassar. And that we haven't figured it out even today that they're, they're not the standard. Yeah. We, we are the standard. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you just think about our history and all we've overcome and, and where we are today. Yeah. There's no competition. Like, and I think to your point about in or out, education is the last bastion of white supremacy and white dominance. If we could just crack open that safe as the rap, because anywhere we go, it's a takeover. Just experienced a Dripping in Black production.